Hey, I'm Tyler Fenwick, host of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast. And before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about the newest podcast from IBJ Media called Off the Record with the Indiana 250. In each episode, IBJ Media CEO Nate Feltman talks with a different leader on the Indiana 250 list of the state's most influential leaders. They discuss their vision for Indiana's future, their experiences in business, and their advice for other aspiring entrepreneurs. New episodes are released on select Thursdays. So go subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Just search for Indiana 250 Off the Record. Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Tyler Fenwick, Indiana Lawyer Senior Reporter and your host. As always, thanks for joining us. For our extended interview this week, I spoke with IU Mauer student Alana Fisher. Alana participated in the Rural Justice Initiative this summer, working in the Lawrence Superior Court. But before we get to that, I'm here in our studio with managing editor Daniel Carson and reporter Alexa Schrake to talk about this week's top legal news. Today is Wednesday, October 4th, and these are your headlines. Daniel, we'll start with you for news about Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita. What can you tell us? Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita's public comments about an Indianapolis OBGYN have landed him in hot water with the Indiana Supreme Court Disciplinary Commission. On September 18th, the commission filed a three-count disciplinary complaint against Rakita. It is alleging the Republican AG violated three Indiana rules of professional conduct through his comments about Dr. Caitlin Bernard, an Indianapolis OBGYN who in July 2022 publicly discussed the abortion she performed on a 10-year-old Ohio girl. The commission alleges that through his comments, Rokita violated confidentiality requirements and, quote, caused irreparable harm to Dr. Bernard's reputational and professional image, end quote. In his answer, Rokita admits that his comments, quote, could reasonably be considered to have violated Indiana rules of professional conduct, unquote, but he's also demanding strict proof thereof and is seeking dismissal. Two of the rule violations cited in the complaint relate to comments Rakita made on the Fox News program, Jesse Waters' Primetime. On July 13, 2022, Rokita went on the show and discussed Bernard, who had entered the national conversation after she revealed the Ohio girl's abortion earlier that month in an article in the Indianapolis Star. In his comments to Waters, Rakita described Bernard as an, quote, abortion activist acting as a doctor with a history of failure to report, end quote. Rakita then publicly discussed his office's investigation into Bernard on five additional occasions. The comments culminated in the November 30, 2022 filing of an administrative action against Bernard's medical license. That action resulted in Bernard being reprimanded and fined $3,000 for violating patient privacy laws, but a finding that she did not fail to report child abuse. Because Rakita made his comments before the administrative action was filed, the disciplinary commission alleges he violated rule of professional conduct 8.4 D. The commission is also citing Rakita for, quote, burdening the court system and causing additional systems and logistical issues for the medical licensing board to navigate, end quote. In his answer, Rakita sought dismissal and argued, among other things, that the complaint violates the separation of powers and free speech protections. Rakita asserted confidentiality was not required in this case because Bernard, quote, 
intentionally and publicly through her attorneys and through the media, first disseminated the very confidential complaints contemplated by the confidentiality statute referenced by the commission, end quote. As to the allegations that Rakita burdened the medical licensing board, he said it was Bernard, not him, who intentionally caused the publicity. Thanks, Daniel. Moving to child welfare, I went to a contempt hearing last week for the Department of Child Services. DCS isn't a party to the civil case in Hendricks County, but the plaintiff has accused the agency of not being forthcoming with documents related to the case. DCS says it has completed the requested discovery production, but Director Eric Miller also said his email wasn't part of the search. The agency's internal affairs officer also explained that DCS doesn't have a server that stores text messages or voicemails. The officer, Christine McDonald, said the best way to get that information is through a subpoena of the cell phone carrier. The judge didn't make a ruling at the hearing. For its part, DCS accused the plaintiff of also being difficult by not providing a list of search terms. The agency said it ultimately produced 130,316 pages of records. The case involves a father who was sentenced to 70 years in prison for the tortured death of his four-year-old son. Mishawaka attorney Charlie Rice, who's representing the plaintiff, told media after the hearing that he hasn't decided on a subpoena for the cell phone carrier. He also alluded to possible civil rights claims against individual employees. Now we'll go over to you, Alexa, for a lawsuit regarding Indiana election law. What's going on there? John Russ, a would-be Republican candidate for U.S. Senate, filed a lawsuit September 18th challenging a state law that would keep him off next year's Indiana GOP primary ballot based on his previous voting record. Russ voted in the Republican primary in 2016, but didn't in 2020, according to the complaint, because there was little incentive to vote with most Republicans running unopposed in Jackson County. Also, in 2012, he voted in the Democratic primary to support candidates he knew personally. Under Indiana statute, his next option was to have his county party chair certify him. According to the complaint, Amanda Lowry, the Jackson County Republican chair, refused to do so because of Russ's voting record. The complaint first seeks declaratory and injunctive relief, alleging First and Fourteenth Amendment violations. It also alleges the statute at issue is overly broad and void for vagueness and violates various provisions of the state and federal constitutions. If he is allowed on the ballot, Rust will be up against Indiana Congressman Jim Banks, who has already been endorsed by the Indiana Republican Party in his bid to take the Senate seat that current Senator Mike Braun is giving up to run for governor. Thanks, Alexa. Speaking of election law, a split Indiana Supreme Court has ruled in favor of a political action committee. Indiana Right to Life Victory Fund, which wants to operate as an independent expenditure pack, commonly called a super PAC, thought Indiana's election laws wouldn't allow it to accept donations from corporations or that there would be a cap on how much it could accept. Meanwhile, the state disagreed with that interpretation and said it wouldn't enforce the law in that way. But the Supreme Court agreed with the fund, as well as a private company, that the law's silence on corporate contributions to super PACs means they are prohibited or otherwise limited. The state argued the law is ambiguous because it doesn't distinguish between expenditures and independent expenditures. But the majority opinion said that argument is circular. The majority also pointed to the effect of the U.S. Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. Quote, So it is no doubt time for the General Assembly to again update its statutes 
to account for this change in constitutional law, the opinion says. But we cannot provide a shortcut through judicial interpretation of unambiguous statutes, end quote. The case started in the federal court, but the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals certified a question to the state Supreme Court. Justice Derek Moulter wrote for the majority. Indiana Chief Justice Loretta Rush concurred along with Justices Mark Massa and Jeffrey Slaughter. Justice Christopher Goff dissented with a separate opinion. Goff said the conflict in the case was needless because, quote, we can supply a workable remedy for an entirely hypothetical constitutional violation, end quote. Going up north now, Daniel, a U.S. Supreme Court justice was at Notre Dame to talk about the future of democracy. What can you tell us? United States Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan kicked off the 2023-2024 Notre Dame Forum, September 22nd, and spoke at length on a variety of topics, including a code of ethics for the court, what she believes originalism means, and whether the court has an ideological divide. In a conversation with G. Marcus Cole, dean of Notre Dame Law School, Kagan's comments were centered around the future of democracy, this year's theme for the forum. Cole asked Kagan to weigh in on whether the Supreme Court should adopt a code of ethics, a question all nine justices have been getting in recent months as their decisions and outside affiliations have come under scrutiny. While she acknowledged that lower courts have a defined code of ethics that governs their work, she said that code doesn't fit quite as well with the work of the Supreme Court. Still, she said adapting such a code to better fit the contours of the high court would be a good thing for the court to do. As for originalism, Kagan told Cole her view is that the meaning of the Constitution evolves over time, a view that she said is consistent with what the framers intended. She gave the example of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. In the true originalist sense, she said that amendment would have to be read in the context of the 1860s. Further, putting the text of the Constitution in its original context is difficult for judges, she said, because judges are not historians. The framers, she said, were speaking for the ages, and they knew it. Turning to voting issues, Kagan insisted that the court has a responsibility to protect the mechanism of democracy itself. She told Cole she disagrees with the idea that the high court could not step in to stop obvious partisan gerrymandering. If the system is working, that is, if every vote counts equally, then courts should let the political process work, she said. Cole then asked Kagan to weigh in on the perception of an ideological divide on the high court, which is currently split 6-3 between justices nominated by Republican and Democratic presidents, respectively. While she said it's not surprising that Americans would take note of high-profile cases decided along those lines, she also noted that 30 to 40 percent of the court's cases are decided unanimously. What's more, she said, there are frequently cases where the justices are scrambled up in terms of their votes, with Republican and Democratic nominees joining forces in unexpected ways. Thanks, Daniel. Staying up north, Indiana Supreme Court justices heard oral arguments at Trine University in Steuben County last week. The case involves a man who had too much alcohol at two restaurants and later killed another driver in a vehicle crash. The estate of the deceased filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the man, as well as the two restaurants, Wings Etc. and El Contorito. The restaurants unsuccessfully moved to dismiss count three of the complaint, which realleges from count two that the defendants, quote, knew or should have known, end quote, 
that the man was visibly intoxicated and they violated their common law duties by continuing to serve him. The Court of Appeals of Indiana affirmed that decision. Counsel for the restaurants argued in front of justices that the Dram Shop Act precludes common law liability. In passing the Dram Shop Act, the Indiana legislature, quote, essentially gutted, end quote, the common law action, New Albany attorney Crystal Rowe argued. Valparaiso attorney Sarah Langer, representing the plaintiff, argued that the Dram Shop Act, quote, absolutely did not abrogate the common law, end quote. Justice Mark Massa commented that a resolution may be more appropriate at the summary judgment stage. After arguments, justices answered questions from students at Trine and surrounding high schools. I have coverage of the arguments and Q&A at theindianalawyer.com. Coming back to you, Alexa, it looks like there's an update in a physician non-compete lawsuit. What's the latest there? Dr. David Linkford has secured a preliminary injunction in his lawsuit against his former employer, Lutheran Medical Group. Allen Superior Court Judge Craig Bombay granted Linkford's motion to enjoin Lutheran and its related entities and agents from enforcing or threatening to enforce the non-compete provision. Linkford had filed the lawsuit in July shortly after the state's new statute on physician non-compete agreements went into effect. According to the complaint, Langford terminated his employment agreement for a cause. But when he attempted to continue working in Fort Wayne, Lutheran contacted his new employers claiming he had violated the non-compete clause in his employment agreement. Quote, Lutheran attempts to bar Dr. Linkford from participating in the spectrum of medical practice during the one-year non-compete period. The court concludes that the non-competition provision restriction on activity is overbroad and unreasonable. Bombay wrote in his September 22nd order. Langford said in a news release that he was glad to go back to work. All right, one more thing from you, Alexa, this time for a new magistrate. What can you tell us? Magistrate Judge M. Kendra Klump was honored September 15th at her official investiture ceremony. Klump fills the vacancy created by Judge Doris Pryor's elevation to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. She was first sworn in during a private ceremony in January. The Milwaukee native is a graduate of Georgetown University where she received a Bachelor of Science in Physics and Mathematics with a minor in French in 2004. Before heading to law school, she served as a Brookhaven National Laboratory Fellow with the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna. After that, she joined the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission in Washington, D.C. as a general scientist. In 2008, Klump started at the University of Michigan Law School, where she was a Daro Scholar, recipient of the Racco Scholarship, and earned certificates of merit for performance in administrative law and securities regulation. She was also a contributing editor on the Michigan Law Review and graduated magna cum laude in December 2010. After law school, she served as a law clerk for Judge Judith Rogers, of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals before starting as an assistant U.S. attorney in Cleveland. In 2017, she became an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Indiana, rising to chief of the district's drug trafficking unit in February 2022. Thanks, Alexa. To round out this week's headlines, Daniel, what are you working on for our next print issue? I'm working on a story about the state's law schools and their diversity efforts in the wake of a landmark Supreme Court decision on affirmative action this summer. The Biden administration has urged colleges and universities to use a range of strategies to promote racial diversity on campus after the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action and admissions. 
My story will look at how state law schools are trying to maintain diversity standards while complying with the Supreme Court's ruling on race-based admissions. You can read all about it in the October 11th issue of Indiana Lawyer. Thanks, Daniel. Okay, that'll do it for headlines this week. As always, if you want more legal news, the IndianaLawyer.com is the place to go. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear this week's extended interview. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, I'm joined over Zoom by Alana Fisher. Alana is an IU Mauer student and participated in the Rural Justice Initiative this summer. So thanks for joining me, Alana. Great to be here. Now, you spent your summer in the Lawrence Superior Court, correct? Correct. That's in Bedford. And so what was it like working there? It was an extremely um, relaxed environment, but busy when it needed to be. Um, One of the nice things about it was because it was such a small community, like the prosecutors, the public defenders, and all the judges knew each other. And they were all very open and friendly with each other, which made it to where they were open and friendly with me since I was with the judge. And so they were always willing to answer any questions um, and always gave me sort of direction on what to be doing and where to go. So I think it was a really great first introduction to sort of what it's like to work hands-on in the law for uh, especially one else. Yeah, was that was there like a warm-up period for you to get comfortable with everybody? Sort of. So actually, my first day, they had a big felony domestic violence trial. So I was thrown right in the deep end. Um, and it was an especially like big occasion at the court because the defendant actually hired private counsel, which was uh, fairly rare in the Lawrence County Court. And it was a three to four day extended trial with a full jury. Um, so most of the staff was busy doing lunches and managing the jury and managing. Um, there was a lot of media there, which was also fairly rare. So I'd say I was sort of thrown in the deep end, but like in a good way, because it really like got me excited. And that sort of goes into what I did um, at Lawrence County. And a lot of it did start off with just listening, asking questions, um, getting a grip on like the process. But that sort of became more of like asking me to do legal research, write up a memo. Like, what does it mean? for a building to be a residence versus something else or um, specifically with the domestic violence trial I was just talking about. They actually had a question on like whether transient bruising was considered like child discipline. And so he had me sort of look into that and give feedback. I'm not sure how much my feedback played into his actual decisions, but it got me hands-on experience with research. Yeah, I, I, I bet it was interesting to... It sounds like you were not knowing for sure what you might be doing day to day and stuff might pop up. That sounds like it could be exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely varied. We did have a couple like larger projects I maintained. So like the big one was actually um, helping him update the death penalty chapter of the judicial bench book. Um, Indiana doesn't get a whole lot of death penalty cases or updates in the law. So it was really just me rereading and confirming that everything's still accurate. Um, and then really just updating some grammar or sentence structure or making things clear, stuff like that. Um, and that was my big like all summer project. So I'd probably do that for a couple hours if there was nothing going on. Uh, but generally there was some sort of question I was researching or writing or sometimes he just had me look into things like I'd ask a question he's like why don't you research it get back to me and then we'd like talk about it at the end of the day and uh, who were you working for I was working with uh John Plummer the third and Superior Court one okay any other big responsibilities you had 
Not really. I know I took a lot of notes just to sort of help him, like remind him when we were talking about in the back of what was going on, especially um, when there's like back to back hearings, because some days they have like 60 in a day. So it started to like blend together. But for the most part, it was mainly just helping discuss things. Um, and then my biggest responsibility was that death penalty chapter. Now, I noticed I, I asked maybe incorrectly who you worked for, and I, I caught on to that. You said I worked with did it feel like more of a side-by-side partnership kind of thing? I would say so, especially um, Judge Plummer is very open and engaging. Um, so it really felt like I worked with him on things, especially with the court staff as well. So like I helped them draft jury instructions, stuff like that when that came up. Because they actually had several trials, which is apparently fairly rare for uh, RJI interns to see and RJI's role justice initiative. So I was really excited to be able to do that. But yeah, I felt more like I was working with the court, not for the court, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. Now, had you ever been to Bedford before? Yes. So because I'm from Clarksville, Indiana, and I went to undergrad in Bloomington as well, I actually take a route that drives right through Bedford all the time. So I have stopped at their steak and shake, like who knows how many times. (laughs) Um, And I usually get like Starbucks there or they have like this really nice Chinese restaurant called the Asian Pearl. So like when I was going back for Christmas break, I was like, you know what, we'll do that often. So stuff like that. I hadn't worked there really like thoroughly explored it, but I've eaten there many times. Did you live there? I did not live there, no. Okay. Were you still able to get to know the community like outside of the court? Um, I would say so, especially this. So the court is located on this like square um, and there's a couple restaurants around there and things like that. So I really got to explore those because, you know, you go out to lunch at like maybe a pub here or there. And I actually had my car worked on because it broke down one day when I was going to work. So I got to meet like four mechanics from Bedford and now I go there consistently because um, it was really nice and a great experience. So, I mean, I wouldn't say you really get to know the community because you're not really like you're interacting with people sort of on a like like you're part of the court. So it might not be like as intimate as you might want as a, or as if you lived there, but you definitely get to know the community just because you're living there, working there, things like that. Now, what made you interested in, in participating in this program? So that sort of goes, uh, there's a lot of different ways I can answer that, but I guess I'll start with just generally. Um, so I'm a first generation uh not just law or college, but also high school on one side of my family. So I've always been interested in sort of helping people who might not have access to law and th- to lawyers or um, don't know how to navigate the legal system. So I was really interested in doing something over the summer that I felt like I could see my, the difference I was making. So that's what made me really interested in rural justice. I also just wanted something that was maybe a little more, I guess, hands-on and intimate. Um, and it also really helps that there is a stipend for that. And it's pretty hard to get those sort of public interest 1L internships that have sort of a payment or thing like that to help you travel. So are you a, a 2L now? Yes, I'm a 2L now. Okay. And do you think the idea of working in rural communities is overlooked by by law students? I know that's a might be a difficult question to answer, but just based on on your experience. I'm going to sort of sidestep the question and say I think it <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> uh it depends on law students as like as a whole, probably, especially with one else, a lot of them really have their eyes on sort of this like bustling city life, almost like cartoonish example of what it means to be a lawyer. I know I was like that to some degree as well. But I think especially as you get older and you spend more time in law school and you start to really figure out what you want to do, I do think rural justice becomes far more like on their minds or like rural uh, commitments and uh, jobs just becomes more available and you start to see those positions open up and consider them. Uh, but I would say with one else, I'll answer for them. They're probably not thinking too much about it. 
Would you be thinking about it if you hadn't taken this opportunity? And I, I know your your background and just where you grew up maybe influenced some of this too. But I guess I'm asking, like, to what extent did participating in this change your perspective on rural justice? I think so. I've always been interested in sort of work, like at least living in a smaller town. Um, so like if I did big law or something like that, I'd probably have a longer commute, which is fine by me because I love music and podcasts. But this made me really consider it as a, a goal because I always had this sort of misinformed idea that rural justice would be laid back. You're not going to be doing it as much. There's not going to be as many cases when I'd say the opposite is probably true. That's actually because there's so few lawyers in these counties, you're like overwhelmed with sort of option and cases. And it, you can really see that difference you're making that you might not see as like in-house counsel. So I'm definitely considering it more, but I wouldn't say I've taken any of the other types of law um, off the table per se. And why would you, I mean, you're, You've got time left in mm-hmm. law school, but I know issues like that come up a lot in our reporting, rural justice, and just the lack of mm-hmm. lawyers. And I think it's interesting that you brought up your perception of that before you got there was a more laid back environment, which to be honest, would be my perception of it too, without being in and uh, reporting on the issues. So I thought that was interesting. But before we go, I wanted to take a step back and and ask just why you decided to go to law school in the first place. Yeah, so that's that's a pretty large question. So I'll try not to take too much time answering it. But I guess even as like a young kid, I always knew I wanted to do a job that like, quote unquote, helped. Um, and I started off thinking about pharmacy school. I was actually a pharmacy tech in like an IV room for two years while I was in uh, undergrad. But I started to really commit to the idea of law school. One of the reasons is because I really liked my philosophy and English classes, and I thought those skills could be applied to law, and I think I would really enjoy applying them. But I also sort of coming from a low-income, first-generation background, saw the effect that access to law and lawyers and sort of knowing how to navigate the legal system makes. And I thought that was a really good way to help people that's maybe not as intuitive as a fifth grader would have thought. Yeah, you mentioned the access to justice piece earlier. Would you say that was the maybe the biggest driver for you? Yeah, I would definitely say that was the biggest driver. Um, I definitely had that like teenage, I'm going to make a difference. Like, I'm going to go to law, I'm going to help people, things like that. So that's actually really what drove me to want to go to IU in particular, and then to Mauer. Now, are you from Indiana? Yes, I'm from uh, Clarksville, Indiana. Which I think is is a... A dumb question because you had already mentioned that earlier. You're good. <laughs> but uh, I know you don't have your your uh, after law school part of life set yet, but is there a list? Is there things you want to explore still? So I started off coming into law thinking I wanted to do like contract law, health law, and maybe like I had two like side ideas of maybe doing wrongful incarceration and pro bono and then helping people copyright books on the side. That sort of comes from my like love of English and just reading uh, stories. But now that I am in law school and I'm aware that there's so much more you can do with a law degree and there's so many more areas of law than I initially realized, I'm far more open. Um, but I'm still mainly focused on like the contract health. Uh, and I definitely know I want to do the wrongful incarceration as sort of like a pro bono side. Are you perhaps a future author? I would love to be. Right now, law school has made it to where I have no time to breathe. So I'm not sure writing a book would be on the table, but maybe when I'm older and wiser and have more to offer. 
<laughs> All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's extended interview. Thank you again for joining me, Alana. Thank you for having me. As always, to hear our previous interviews, visit theindianalawyer.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk to you next time.